0: Hello friends and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher here at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.
1: We have your Bible with you. I'd love for you to open it now to the Epistle of Jude. Generally speaking, my intention for every episode of Into the Word is to read and explain one full chapter of the Bible in 15 to 20 minutes or less. But with episodes introducing a new book or a new letter, we usually give ourselves a few extra minutes to cover basic introduction and orientation. The Epistle of Jude is one of the oldest books in the New Testament. Richard Bockham, for example, says it could easily be among the earliest of the New Testament documents, as well as being rare and valuable firsthand evidence of the character of the Christian devotion and developing theology of those original Palestinian circles in which Jesus' own relatives were leaders, closed quote. Now, bacham of course, is using the word, Palestinian there in a geographical sense as opposed to an ethnic sense. He is saying that the epistle of Jude may provide us our earliest look into the situation on the ground in the church of Judea in the earliest decades of Christian history. Now, his assessment is based upon the assumption that the Jude referred to here is the brother of Jesus, one of four brothers referred to by name in Matthew 13, 55. That was the consensus of the early church, and it remains the consensus of evangelical scholarship. These are biological half-brothers through Mary. Now, apparently, both Jude and James became evangelists and missionaries and leaders within the early church. The Apostle Paul makes mention of that in 1 Corinthians 9, 5. The belief that this is a very old book also presupposes that 2 Peter uses Jude as a source. Now, if you're a Bible reader, then you have no doubt noticed that there is a great deal of overlap between Jude and 2 Peter, and it does seem logical to assume that one of those two writers had the other person's letter open before him as he wrote his own epistle. The majority of conservative scholars now assume that it was Peter consulting Jude as opposed to Jude consulting Peter. This judgment is based upon a very careful comparison of the various similarities and a consideration of what has been added, what has been left out, and what reasons there may have been for those various alterations. Now, Thomas Schreiner comments helpfully here, noting that evangelicals have occasionally worried that literary dependence would call into question inspiration and authority. But inspiration does not rule out the use of sources as if only direct messages from God were inspired, closed quote. I think that is very helpful for us to see. Not all inspired documents in the Bible were compiled in the same manner. God appears to have more or less dictated certain portions of Jeremiah, whereas Luke says that he went around and interviewed eyewitnesses and compiled his gospel based largely on those accounts. But the Holy Spirit superintended both of those processes to ensure that the final product communicated what he wanted communicated. And so it is here. Jude obviously wrote something to his people that Peter found very helpful and that he made careful use of in writing to his own people. So what we have here is a very early letter. It would have had to have been written no later than the mid-60s for Peter to have made use of it before he died. So it's an old letter and it is addressing an ancient heresy, a heresy that was obviously popping up all over the Mediterranean world. Now, as to the precise identity of this heresy and the identity of those promoting it, it's hard to be as specific as we might like because Jude doesn't tell us as much as we might like. However, a careful study of what he does say to refute these false teachers offers several helpful clues as to what they were likely teaching. D.A. Carson, for example, says that these false teachers were sacrificing something that has been essential to the gospel from the very beginning, closed quote. He deduces that based on what Jude says in verse three about the importance of contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So obviously these false teachers were attacking something original, something historical and something essential to the Christian confession. Carson then goes on to say that clearly these false teachers are teaching the gospel in a way that transmutes it into a license for immorality closed quote. So if we take those two deductions, which arise very naturally out of the text, and we compare that to what we know about the problems being addressed in Second Peter, which must have been very similar, then I think it is reasonable to suggest with appropriate caution that these early heretics were doubting and denying the doctrine of the second coming of Christ, which of course is a core doctrine of the Christian church. These folks were saying that there is No second coming, there is no final judgment, and therefore there is no need to fear the judgment and sanction of God upon issues of personal morality. Jesus isn't coming back, he's not going to judge, and therefore believers are free to live however they choose. That reconstruction of the heresy nicely matches what we see in the text in terms of the response and rebuke of Brother Jude. All right, with all that being said, hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Scholars often note that Jude is fond of literary triplets. He writes to those who are called, loved, and kept, and he prays that they would be given mercy, peace, and Love, that is classic Jude. The words called, loved, and kept were all words that were normally applied to God's people. To be Israel in the Old Testament was to be the called people of God. We think of passages like Isaiah 48, 12. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. God's people are those he has called out of the mass of humanity unto himself. The term is used in that way also in the New Testament. We think of the golden chain in Romans 8.30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Close quote. So to be a Christian is to have been called. Before you called on God, he called on you. Hallelujah. Jude is also writing to people who are loved. To be a Christian is to enjoy the particular familial love of God. Now, there is a sense, of course, in which God loves the world, the whole of his creation. But there is a particular sense in which he loves his covenant people. In Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 8, he says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Do you hear that? God loves us because he loves us. He promised that he would and he does. Hallelujah. Again, we find the exact same sort of sentiment expressed in the New Testament. Jesus says to his disciple, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. John fifteen nine. What an amazing thought that is. As the Father loves Jesus, so Jesus loves us. Thanks be to God. Lastly, Jude refers to these folks as those who are kept. Scholars debate as to whether it is best to translate that kept for Jesus Christ or kept by Jesus Christ. Both are obviously true and expressed elsewhere in the New Testament. So I prefer to hear both in this marvelous little phrase. We are kept by Jesus and we are kept for Jesus, thanks be to God. So Jude is writing to Christians, Christians who enjoy incredible mercies and miraculous favor. They have been called, they are loved, and they are being kept and preserved by and for Jesus Christ. What marvelous grace, what unspeakable privileges they enjoy. And yet, they are not without difficulties in this world. We begin to hear about those difficulties in verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude intended to write to these folks about other things, but he felt constrained, he says, to write to them about the need to fight for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It is from this verse that scholars deduce that the heresy being addressed here had something to do with an essential and historic aspect of the Christian confession. Jude would not have bothered to write to them about a debatable matter, a matter of conscience or a matter of indifference. He would only take up this tone to address a matter of absolute urgency and central importance to the Christian faith. And there is a lesson in that, I think particularly for younger pastors. There is, of course, a time to fight for the faith, but it is not something we should run to with any great enthusiasm. Pity the church burdened with a pastor who loves to fight for the faith. Pastors do not fight for fun. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul says that a pastor should be gentle, not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money, First Timothy 3.3. 3. That's the normal attitude and posture of the pastor. Nevertheless, it will be necessary at times to fight for the faith and pity the church burdened with a pastor who is incapable or unwilling to do that should he be called upon to do so. We thank God, don't we, for men like Martin Luther and for women like Selina Hastings, Countess of Huntingdon, who rose to the challenge and went to war in order to preserve the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And that's what we see Jude doing here. He is stealing himself for an unpleasant task. Verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, first of all, that these false teachers are operating inside the church. Jude is not fighting secularism in the culture, he is fighting heresy in the church. Certain people have crept into the church unnoticed. Now, notice, secondly, that there is no reason for anyone to be surprised by this. It happens in every generation. There are always certain churches, and at times whole denominations, that allow themselves to become conduits for the noxious fumes of demonic doctrine. Jesus said this would happen in Matthew 24. He said, false prophets will arise and lead many astray. So you're allowed to be upset, but you are not allowed to be surprised. Thirdly, notice... Jude saying that the goal of these false teachers is to pervert the grace of God into sensuality and to break free, as it were, from the lordship of Jesus Christ. These folks are preaching a form of cheap grace. God forgives you. God is merciful. Therefore, you can do what you please. They appreciate the cross of Christ, but they have no time for the commands of Christ. They want to do as they please. We've seen this sort of heresy again and again and again over the course of Christian history. And we've seen that sort of thing in the Old Testament as well, haven't we? That's exactly where Jude goes next in verse 5 and following. He says, now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. By the way, let's just pause and notice that. Notice how easily Jude equates Jesus with God. Who was it that led the Israelites out of Egypt? Well, of course it was God. But Jude says that Jesus saved the people out of Egypt. Why would he say that? Because he is thoroughly convinced that Jesus is God. Do you see that? That's quite remarkable. I don't imagine that my brother will ever confuse me for God. Jude grew up with Jesus, and yet here he is Speaking of Jesus and the God of the Old Testament interchangeably. How remarkable. His point, however, is that God can save a people and establish a community, but then afterward turn and judge those who disbelieve. That's what happened in the Old Testament. Not all who passed through the Red Sea were brought alive into the promised land. Many perished in the desert because of disbelief. So Jude is warning these people that just because Jesus has done a great work of salvation and just because he has established a new covenant community, don't think that he won't turn and judge those sheltering within the community who actually do not believe. Of course he will. He's God and he's done that before. Look at verse 6. And the angels that God has shown himself quite willing in the past to judge those who eschew their privileges in order to embrace sexual immorality. The angels did it. In the days of Noah, they left their positions of privilege because they saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. and They were condemned and punished for doing so. Likewise, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were given one of the most beautiful slices of creation. It was like the garden of God, the Bible says, But they turned around and gave themselves over to sexual immorality and debauchery and thereby came under the judgment and condemnation of the Lord. Let that be an example to us, Jude says. God can and does judge those who eschew their privileges and give themselves over to sexual immorality. He's done it before, and you can bet he will do it again if you're foolish enough to go down that road. Verse 8, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. These False teachers, however, Jude says, are completely oblivious to the lessons of history as recorded for us in Holy Scripture. And of course, that's that's not their source. That's not their authority. They, They have a different authority. They're trusting in their dreams and other forms of special revelation. Be very wary of leaders who wish to untether their churches from the Bible in whole or in part. Leaders who attempt to do that are usually laying the groundwork for a wholesale abandonment of traditional biblical morality. Because, of course, if your people take the Bible seriously, then there'll be no room in the church at all for sexual innovation, sexual shenanigans, and so you're going to have to break their hold on the scriptures first before you begin to introduce your program of sexual immorality. This pattern has been repeated again and again and again over the course of redemptive history. Reader beware. Now, as for that odd phrase, they blaspheme the glorious ones. We're not really sure what that means exactly. It could mean that they dishonor the angels who mediated the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, or it could mean that they disparage the angelic messengers who minister presently to the church of Jesus Christ. We think, for example, of the angels of the churches. In Revelation chapter 1 and 2 and 3, Jude is likely trying to emphasize the similarity between the false teachers in his day and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah who likewise dishonored the angelic messengers of the Lord. Verse 9, but when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Jude appears here to be drawing upon a Jewish source known as the Assumption of Moses. The fact that he cites it does not imply that he believed it to be authoritative any more than my quoting from Calvin's Institutes implies that I think John Calvin to be an inspired apostle. Jude is simply illustrating here. The point he is trying to make is that if an angel is very careful in what he says when addressing spiritual forces, how much more ought we to be? Jude is saying that these false teachers are acting very recklessly. They are treating casually matters of serious and even eternal consequence. Verse 11, woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Here, Jude compares these false teachers to figures in the Old Testament who also opposed the people of God and led many into disaster and ruin. By comparing them to Cain, he says effectively that they represent a lethal threat to the people of God. By comparing them to Balaam, he says that they're trying to get the people of God to bring themselves under the curse of God. You remember that Balaam was hired to curse the people of Israel, but he quickly found out that he could not curse what God was blessing. So he advised Balak to send beautiful young women into the camp to entice the young men of Israel to attend the local cultic festivals, which involved ritual prostitution. Basically, he told Balak that if you can't curse these people... Get them to curse themselves. Use sexual temptation to lure them into paganism and idolatry. That's exactly what these false teachers are doing now, Jude says. And then by comparing them to Korah, he says that they're rebels against the true and legitimate leaders within the covenant community. They are defying every authority in order to lure you into disaster and ruin. Listen, friends. Beware of people who are saying and teaching things that would have been opposed by every honored leader within the history of the church of Jesus Christ. Okay, those people are committing Korah's rebellion, they're recapitulating Balaam's error, and they're walking in the way of Cain, seeking to destroy the covenant community of God. Verse 14, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Here, Jude again quotes from an extra-canonical source. But everything he says is repeated in other prophecies contained within the Bible. Jesus himself said that he would come back with the armies of heaven and that he would set up his throne and judge the world in righteousness. And that is what Jude is prophesying here. He is saying that these false teachers are heading for a day of reckoning, a day of judgment, and you don't want to be standing anywhere near them on that day. Verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there'll be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. So don't be taken in by these people, Jude says. You know what was predicted by the apostles of the Lord. They said that scoffers would come, and they would deny the second coming. They would deny the reality of final judgment. They would... Open the door to all manner of ungodly passion, all of this was predicted. So there's absolutely no reason to fall for it. This is the same old lie, the same old siren song that has been sung throughout the entire history of the church, Old Testament and New. This is how the devil tries to get God's people to curse themselves, have nothing to do with it. And he says that it's these sorts of people who cause division in the church. Now hear that. Very often it's the reformers who are labeled as divisive by those trying to introduce this kind of error in the church. It's the people flying the rainbow flag who are pointing at those resisting such novelties and abominations and saying these people are divisive. They're fighting and contending and disturbing the peace and unity of the church. But Jude says it's the innovators. It's those introducing the false teaching that are responsible for the division in the church. Those who are preaching the old time gospel, those who are still preaching from the pages of Holy Scripture, they're not the problem. It's those who've gone beyond and who have stepped outside. Those are the ones who are responsible for disturbing the peace and unity of God's house. That's on them. Verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt save others by snatching them out of the fire to others show mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by the flesh here jude says that the way to immunize yourself against these sorts of evil enticements is to grow in your christian faith that's how you contribute to the keeping of yourself in the christian faith if you're not growing you're dying. If you're not moving forward, you're falling away. By building yourself up in your most holy faith and by praying in the Holy Spirit, you're keeping yourself in your faith. Now, on the other side of the charismatic movement in the 20th century, we we hear that bit about praying in the Holy Spirit very differently than we used to hear it. Michael Green says here, by prayer in the Holy Spirit, it is sometimes suggested that prayer in tongues is indicated. If so, it is hinted at very obscurely. The man who has the Spirit of God within him, that is to say, every Christian, the man who is led by the Holy Spirit in his prayers as in all else, will certainly pray in the Spirit. Close quote. So, it is not a special type of prayer that only the super spiritual are capable of. It is just prayer. Grow, Jude says, and pray, Jude says, Pray as a spirit-filled, Bible-reading, Jesus-loving Christian, and you won't be misled by these demonic messengers. That's how God will keep you in the faith. As John Piper famously said, he will keep you in the faith by enabling you to do keeping things. He'll help you to grow. He'll help you to pray. He'll help you to stay. Thanks be to God. But don't just worry about yourself, Jude says. Watch out also for other people who might be drifting. Snatch such people out of the fire. But be careful as you do that, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Thomas Schreiner explains this difficult phrase, saying that it likely refers to the effort that needs to be undertaken to rehabilitate those who have fallen into sexual immorality under the spell of these false teachers. He says... Even in this case, mercy should still be extended, but the readers should be extremely careful avoiding the danger of being stained by the sin of those opponents, closed quote. So, have mercy on the victims, but beware of breathing in the fumes of this false doctrine, lest you be led into sin and error yourselves. That is very wise counsel indeed. Verse 24, now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is beyond a doubt one of the most beautiful doxologies in all of Holy Scripture. But it isn't just beautiful. It is also carefully crafted as the perfect summary and conclusion to the entire argument. Jude is reminding his people that though the false teachers threaten, God is able. He is able to keep you in your most holy faith. Their lies are not stronger than his truth. The spirit that is in us is stronger than the spirit that is in the world and that is speaking to you through them. God knows how to do this. God is able to keep you. He knows how to keep you in the faith by enabling you to do the very things that will keep you in the faith.
0: Once again, that's into the word.ca. We hope to see you again real soon, right here, for another episode of Into the Word.